It is the Sunday after Easter, and a lot of times our energy in the church kind of moves on from Easter, and yet the historic church tradition actually anchors in this space for quite a while. It says, no, for the next period of time, we're going to live into a season called Eastertide, and we're going to honor that Jesus' footsteps, before they would be lifted off the sky and ascend, they were actually grounded in this earthen reality, real relationships, real people, real time, post-resurrection. And so we're going to sit in that today, that, that kind of bridge to the movement of the Spirit. And then, starting next week, we're really going to look at this historical movement of the Spirit. So what this whole piece is, is a sermon series that we're going to be walking through as a church called The Story of the Spirit. An Eastertide movement, an Eastertide reflection, an Eastertide journey as we walk with Jesus. And the beautiful design that you have here is from our dear brother, Mondo Scott. So shout out to you, Mondo. Thank you, my brother. Um, I think we're going to be able to convince Mondo to talk more about this design at some point. So now that I've said it out loud here, it, it'll happen. Um, when, when Mondo shares a design with us and the thoughtfulness and intentionality behind the beauty of it is just breathtaking. And so I can't wait for y'all to get to hear some of the, the beauty of this. But I also love when you get to see a work of art, that you get to bring something to it before you hear from the artist. And so I think that's kind of beautiful that this week you just get to see it. There's a thought that I've been thinking about since last Sunday. Last Sunday, we looked at the story of Mary Magdalene as Mary was up as soon as she could be while it was still dark, as she bravely journeyed towards that tomb. And then as she saw that that stone was moved, she ran back, told the other disciples. They come running back, and apparently it's a foot race because in our scriptures it tells us who was there first. Just like later we'll get like a fishing race because they tell us how many fish were caught. Boys will be boys. And yet, as the other disciples leave, she stays. So last Sunday we sat in that movement of Mary holding her holy ground. And then Mary, in the beauty of grace and gravity, looking into that tomb and then being met by a resurrection that came to where she is, a resurrection that was as near as her name. But while she's in that tomb and she looks, she doesn't realize she's quite in a conversation with somebody that must have been behind her because it says she had to turn and see somebody. And I wonder when she turned and saw if she was in the tomb. And so the light behind her was almost a silhouette of someone that was on the outside of the tomb now. And it says that she didn't know that it was Jesus. And it says in my scriptures, thinking he was the gardener. She thought he was the gardener. I wonder why our Mary thought he was the gardener. I wonder if Jesus had sweat on his brow post-resurrection. I wonder if Jesus' hands were dirty, and not with the stuff of death, but with the soil of life. I wonder if the first thing that Jesus did after he rolled out of that tomb was go and just get on his hands and knees and put them in the earth to feel life again. I wonder if the first thing that Jesus did as a new Adam was go back to a garden like the original Adam and say, oh, a gardener? I know something about gardens. She thought he was a gardener. I wonder if he had the fragrance of flowers upon him. I wonder if the first thing that Jesus did as he moved out of this movement of death was just to go get as near to life as possible. And as he stepped out of the tomb, he just, he sees a garden and he just has to, like a playful dog, roll around in it. Just, what is this? This is the stuff of life. She thought he was a gardener. What a beautiful, ordinary brilliant, redemptive belief. And yes, it's true. This is a God who grows new life and who grows good things and beautiful things and fragrant things and who invites us to get on our hands and knees and plunge into the earth as well. And yet there's just something so remarkably ordinary about Mary believing that Jesus was a gardener. Today, I wanna to sit in the remarkable ordinary of resurrection. And I know, why do you have paper? 
Today, I want us to have three vignettes of post-resurrection stories. And in each of them, I want you to see the remarkable ordinariness of them, and then to even be able to mark them in a, in a marker, in an icon, a badge, a visual, something that comes to mind that just, that just pops off the page as you sit with the story. And you go, I just, wanna, I just wanna hold that a little bit. And if you're visual, there's a circle, you can, you can just put an image right in there. Or if words are your piece, there's enough, there's enough lines to just offer a few thoughts, a few notes. Maybe you've got a haiku and a title. You can go right there. Title 575. Boom, you're in. 75. Okay, never mind. Um, but I want you to have space for your creativity to come out as you're seeing the images in the story. Um, a few years ago, when our twins were just newborns, um, my wife and I went on our first trip, sans kids, just the two of us. We went to New York City to see some friends. And we came home with tattoos that we had no plan on getting. That's what happens when you leave your kids for the first time in a long time. We were sitting with breakfast at a friend's uh, and, and we had New York bagels and I didn't think that was a thing. Like I was pretty convinced that was not gonna be a thing. It's a thing. The bagel was better than any bagel I've ever had and it was annoyingly good. I was like, dang it. So as he has like wined and dined us with the most beautiful bagel I've ever had, it's the water, okay, whatever it is, it's delicious. He said, oh, I gotta go to a meeting, but when I get out of the meeting, you guys should get tattoos. I honestly think he could have said anything to us and it probably would have happened. We were like just puppy dogs, just yeah, sure, whatever. What should we get? I honestly think he could have said anything and we would have probably gotten it. Like unicorns with a fairy dancing, like sure, okay, let's do it. I said, no, I've always had this idea because just home has always been symbolic. So I always thought just a, just a simple sketch of home would be really beautiful. And it was really cool how the spirit works because for a Christmas gift one year, just very simply, I had done simple sketches of the homes that Amy and I had lived in together as husband and wife over our years. And God has had us on the move in different seasons from Chicago to Kentucky to Arkansas to California to Arkansas to California. Um, and so each of these homes is actually a movement of the spirit. And so marking them is a marker of remembrance. And so we went and got tattoos, both of us on our wrists that say home. Well, mine says home uh, because I needed the word and I needed the image. Thus, you get the image and the word there on your piece of paper today because you may need one or the other. But when I see this, for me, it's a marker of a movement of the spirit. It's just a reminder, it's a visual. Wherever I go, I carry home with me. And if I'm ever apart from home, home is still with me. And my wife, she carries home with her too. And so as we look at these resurrection stories today, perhaps there's a visual that comes to you and you just don't wanna miss it. You just wanna mark it down. And so you just wanna draw it, you wanna write it, and you wanna hold on to it and carry it with you. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for the opportunity to sit with your stories of just ordinariness that is somehow remarkable. She thought he was a gardener. I love the simplicity of that. I love the beauty of that. I love the truth of that. I love how ordinarily remarkable it is that the resurrection of the living God is first seen as one who puts their hands in the dirt. Today, God, would you allow our hands to get dirty with creativity, to feel the soil of life, to see new things grow, to be reminded of the stories that you write, and you are a God who writes resurrection stories. So even in us today, help us remember our own resurrection stories. It's in your name we pray. Amen. The story is in Luke chapter 24. And it's these two disciples, or we assume that there's two, it could be more. They're walking on the road to Emmaus and they're heartbroken and they're hopeless. It says, we had hoped because what they've just witnessed is the cross and the death, the loss of their Messiah, their hope, their leader, their rabbi, their friend, their teacher. And as they're walking this lonely road, a lonely road of remembrance, 
not just of a friend that they lost, but of a whole new reality that they had hoped for that has now been crushed. They believe that they are walking alone. And yet, as they're walking alone, this Jesus, the same kind of Jesus who would be mistaken for a gardener, he is sneaky in his post-resurrection self. I love his sense of humor in this whole thing. I love that he will just walk up on folks and just be whoever they desire him to be in that space, that he can hold that space in them. So as they walk alongside, Jesus entertains conversation with them, and they're able to open up not just their dreams and their visions, but they're also able to open up their hopelessness. He did that for Mary Magdalene, do you remember? Why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? This is the tenderness of our Jesus in his post-resurrection self. But we had hoped that he was gonna be the one to redeem Israel. And as they share more and more, it says, but they did not see Jesus. And so Jesus begins to open up the stories of the scriptures with them and begins to try to paint the whole narrative, the whole picture, tries to help them see. And in the words sometimes, they don't do it justice. No matter how much we wanna like proof text resurrection to somebody, no matter how much we want to proof text and let somebody see the whole story, we can write a good paper on Jesus. We can give a good explanation on Jesus. We can offer a pamphlet and leave it in your dashboard for Jesus. But sometimes that's not what people need. Sometimes what people need is actually the movement of the spirit that happens next. It says, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us. I just, I just want to interrogate the text for a moment. Why did they want him to stay with them? These were people who were hopeless. These were people who were downcast. And yet a seemingly stranger walks with them, and they don't want that stranger to go. They urge him to stay. They don't want this man that they don't even know is Jesus to leave. They urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. And so he went in to stay with them. And then we pick it up in verse 30. When Jesus was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened. Then they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us? while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. Their hearts were burning as the words were proclaimed, but their eyes were opened as they shared a table and broke bread. They had sight to see resurrection in the simplicity of sharing a table. Now, I love this table. This table is dear and near to me. It's so beautiful and so ornate. It feels so holy, and yet sometimes it doesn't feel quite ordinary enough, does it? When we think about the Lord's table, sometimes we imagine that tables must look like this. But what if it was a pop-up plastic table like we have in the lobby without a cloth over it? What if the table was just as holy as that because they shared that table together? As you try to visualize what a marker of ordinary resurrection might be in this story, what comes to mind? What image kind of rises off the page for you? What do you see that you want to draw in your circle? What words are illuminated as you hear that story? This God who walks with us on the road, even when we're hopeless. This God who in his grace isn't going to force his way to dinner with us, but actually invites us to say, no, no, we want you to come. We want you to stay. This God who shares the table, breaks bread, offers it to them and gives thanks. And only then are eyes opened. I want to give you a second to imagine in that story yourself and to imagine where you see ordinariness of resurrection that is remarkable in its simplicity and remarkable in its beauty. Take a second. If there's an image that comes to mind, go ahead and draw it. If there are words that come to mind, go ahead and jot them down.
Anybody have anything that came to mind? Uh, something that just began to rise up, a drawing, an image, an icon, a marker, a moment? Anybody have one they're willing to share? Mike, you willing to share? Um, I, I used some words, but it's words about something that you can't describe with words. And what I, what I wrote down was an indescribable presence that they felt with this person. There was something, there was a presence there that they didn't want to leave and uh, it was about them, but they couldn't, you, you weren't going to be able to describe that and say, well, tell me why. Well, I, I don't know. And, uh, and similarly, when they're, when they're eating and, you know, he, he uses words, but again, this all started with there's this, you can't describe everything all the time. Sometimes things go beyond your words. I love that. thinking back upon our uh, response to Resurrection last Sunday. The first thing we did as a church to celebrate Resurrection Sunday after the service was over is walk out through the lobby into the courtyard and share tacos. And too many tacos. I think I had five. I didn't have tacos the rest of the week. <laughs> I had so many tacos. Um, and yet there was something so ordinary about sitting on blankets and chairs in a courtyard and yet something so remarkable about looking into the eyes of our people and slowing down and having space to just share stories. And I loved little moments happening. Um, like my kids at a blanket with a group of 20 and 30 year olds who then got folded into a game of whatever they were playing. That's so good, it's so beautiful. That is resurrection happening before our very eyes of new life new creation, something that is just vibrant and vivacious happening. And the ordinariness of shared tables or shared blankets or shared chairs or shared tacos. Doug. Uh, they experience resurrection Jesus on a little hike. It's just a little <laughs> stroll. And right there as their feet are kind of dirty, Jesus shows up. Mm -hmm. Serena, do you wanna give a plug about church hikes? Um, <laughs> I love that. I love that their bodies are moving. They're walking together. That they're on a journey. And the guy. Little them. road trip. Little road trip. A little surprise in the midst of that, too. All right, I want you to hold that story. Maybe something is illuminated for you as you go on. And then let's look at a second vignette. The second vignette is the story of a God who appears to those who he loves, those who know him most dearly those who just have longed to see with him and to be with him and to go, oh, we missed you. This God who shows back up into the room where they are staying, perhaps in sadness and in fear. And the first thing that this God who does is bestow peace upon them. Over and over in the post-resurrection movements, the words that are proclaimed from the holiness of God is not behold, the mighty one stands before you, but instead, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Where is your hope? I bring peace upon you. This post-resurrection Jesus is an offering, a movement, an embodiment of peace and grace and goodness. And so as Jesus comes to with his people, it says that he even breathes the spirit upon them. So the story of the spirit is a post-resurrected Jesus who in the ordinary remarkableness of all of life comes to be with people, bestow peace upon them, and then bring through breath the Holy Spirit for the people of God. But Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. And Thomas's response is, Unless I see the nail scars in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Thomas lays down some incredibly 
real, gutturally raw conditions upon which faith can then be birthed from in his life. This is what I need from God. This is actually how I need God to show up in my life. I want to honor and admire Thomas's honesty. This is actually, Jesus, if you want to show me you're real, here it is. Can you show up like that? How real are you, resurrected Jesus? Oh, y'all saw him? I want to touch him. Oh, y'all saw him? I want to touch him. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. A week later, I just, I guess I just missed that that was in the story. That for a whole week, Thomas had to walk around those, I'm not going to do the whole thing. <laughs> but I imagine it was not delight. I imagine it was not just encouragement. I imagine he was not skipping with joy that those who he had walked with through it all got to experience resurrection in a way that he was deprived from. A week later, God let, God let Thomas hold that space for a week. A week is enough time for something to be created and then rested upon. A week is enough time for all of creation. And perhaps Thomas needs a new creation. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. And Thomas was with them. I bet he was. I bet every which way that they went, Thomas was with them. Oh, we're having tacos? I will be there. Thomas, you showed up early again. I'm not going nowhere. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then Jesus said to Thomas, Thomas didn't show up and shout and bring those convictions, Jesus met Thomas where Thomas was. Resurrection returns to you. It's as near as your name, Mary. Thomas? Mm, mm, mm. Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And then Thomas says to him, my Lord and my God. You know, one of the things that I'm so fascinated about in this story is it never tells us that Thomas touched him. Thomas came with all of these conditions, all of these convictions. This is what I need. Jesus, you must show up in this way. How real are you? If you're so real, let me tell you what I need you to do to show up. And God says, okay, I'll do all those things. And yet what Thomas actually needed was just the presence of God with him, period. Did he touch him? I imagine he did. I imagine this was the first touch, though. I imagine it was less of, let me do a, a five-point inspection. And I imagine what he really most needed was just a long embrace with his friend. What visuals come to mind in the story? What images? What could you draw there in that second circle? What could you mark in that moment and say, I don't want to miss the sight of this in the story? It is so ordinary, and yet it is so remarkable. Are there words that come to mind in the story? Thomas, one who needed to touch, yet at the sight and at the words of Jesus says, my Lord and my God. I'll give you a second.
these little vignettes, the, the garden, the road to Emmaus, that's just a simple walk. Meeting with Thomas in a room with the disciples. They're so confounding to me in the simplicity because if the point was for Jesus to prove to every possible person on earth that this was God who resurrected, there were more convincing ways that Jesus could have proved. Do you know what I mean? Like this must have been about something bigger than just proving a historical data marker of resurrection. There must have been something more on Jesus's mind than just, well, throughout history, will skeptics be able to certify that my resurrection happened? And if so, what must I do to entail such a story being told in such a way? Instead, Jesus had his friends on his mind. Post-death, Jesus had his friends on his mind. And he comes to meet them where they are. All right. Yes, Glendar, what you got, sis? Well, first thing came to my mind. Can you hear me? Yeah. First thing came to my mind was uh, Gideon and how he tested God. And we call that later on in uh, modern, modern Christianity, we say that people fleece God because <laughs> that's what, he, what, what happened. And it, the story is, that you just shared with us, with Thomas, it wasn't about what he saw or God even proving himself to him, but he had, the, the evidence was with him. He had to have faith and belief. So whether or not, you're right, they never said he touched him, but I'm sure after seeing him show up, what is there left to do? I don't need to touch, okay? So okay. that's what came to my mind. I really appreciated the, the idea of Jesus showing up to meet the need. Um, the image I had was like a heart with some chains and then like a hand reaching out to touch it. Um, the idea that even with locked doors, Jesus showed up. I just love that. And I think it goes very well with the last story of weren't our hearts burning? Yeah. You know, like, yeah. you know, who are you looking for? Like this encounter that happens and Jesus shows up and meets the need. I feel like it was Jesus touching him. He didn't even have to touch Ooh. him because Jesus showed up. Yes. And that was, yes. so no, no lock, no barrier can stop that when we're open. And like even naming that doubt, like, well, I need to touch him or I don't know, right? I really like that. That's beautiful, Jennifer, thank you. Rolanda. Okay. But the thing that keeps on resonating me because I love me some Thomas because I resonate with Thomas is that Jesus sort of like, I'm not scared of you. Bring it. Like, I'm not scared of your doubts. I'm not scared of your stuff. I'm not scared of you want to be met. You want to be seen. I can meet you in your doubts. I can meet you in your, I hear you, I see you. Um, so sort of like, come on. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I love that, that dwayed in any way. He says, I'll meet you. We can pass this mic around for the last piece. I want you to sit in that second vignette. I want you to mark that moment. If there's words, if there's images, even just leave yourself some notes to come back to to sit with in the story later. Maybe a little, little wrinkle that you haven't seen before. That God is still illuminating our eyes to still see resurrection anew. And then we'll look at our third and final vignette today. This last story is of a fisherman. His name is Peter. And when Jesus first saw him, he was a guy who was out on the water that was called in and that he was invited right from the very beginning to follow in the footsteps of the rabbi and to leave behind a different life, to get dusty in the foot of a rabbi and to now follow this Jesus. And this is a Peter who is defiant, 
stubborn, committed, courageous, albeit crazy at times, and yet so deeply, authentically true to who he is, mistakes and all. Um, I actually so admire the humanity that we see in this man from this whole story. One who saw his own mother-in-law healed early on, and that at some point must have said, hmm, something's happening here. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna stick close to this story and see it through. And yet, if you know the story of Peter, you know that in that dark hour, this was a Peter who would betray and deny affiliation and allegiance with Jesus as Jesus went to the cross. And so as Thomas was waiting, what did Peter's waiting feel like? What did Peter's waiting feel like? Even if he was convinced right away that this Jesus was resurrected and real, did Thomas know that, did Peter know that, are Peter and Jesus still real? I know Jesus is real. Is is this thing that we shared so intimately still real? Is the, is the, the holiness, the beauty, the intimacy, the cohesive, the call from long ago, the miracles we've seen, the stories we've shared, the stuff we just barely got out of alive. Is, is that still real? I can hold to the, to the reality that Jesus is real, but what about me and Jesus? Is that still real? Do we have a God who can meet us in that? Not just to prove, yes, I'm real, but our we is the us-ness of us and Jesus real. Peter, as he knows how to do, goes back out onto the water, goes to fish in the darkness. Nothing is caught. The next morning, a man standing on the shore calls out to fishermen, and advises them what to do with their nets. I imagine language was shared back and forth from the boat to the shore. You tell fishermen that haven't caught fish what to do to catch more fish. I imagine there was color in the atmosphere. And yet they do so out of desperation because nothing that they had done worked. And they haul in so many that the net is starting to break. And then it says one of the disciples recognizes it's Jesus, it's the Lord. Peter wraps himself in clothes, jumps into the water, just books it to get there. And as Peter arrives, just soaping, sobbing, (laughs) wet. There's a fish breakfast that has been made for him on the charcoal fire of the beach, ready for him to just sit down and eat. Says they ate. And I imagine Peter's like, no, I got things I need to say to you. And I imagine Jesus is like, eat. You need food. You're tired. You're hungry. The us-ness can hold for just a moment. We'll get there. But I made you breakfast. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And then the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him the third time, do you love me? And that hurt just feels like such a tender wound. And for a while, I think I was confronted with that in the scriptures of, did Jesus wound him by asking him over and over and over again? Did he just like make him go through it? Was he a friend that was like, you wronged me and I'm gonna put you through the works until this relationship is restored? Or was it an invitation for Peter to even know that 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 wound is there? That there is a wound for love 
that his desire to be one with Jesus is so deeply real that it hurts. His love is so raw that it aches. Peter is lovesick for Jesus. Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus says to him, feed my sheep. Uh, I want us to see the simplicity, the remarkable ordinariness of Jesus post-resurrection, that love precedes fellowship. That loving Jesus and being invited into the love story of our oneness and our usness with Jesus is the first thing. The feeding the sheep, the obedience, the discipleship, the what is my call in life? What am I supposed to do with the new job? Where am I supposed to go? What is God inviting me into? Yes, all of those stories need to be written out as the Spirit invites us to. But the first thing is, do you love me? It's a holy invitation for you for us to receive in this remarkably simple story. Remember, a Jesus who rose from the dead, came back to life, and has relational restoration on his mind. Was the Spirit of God wasted? The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead, was the Spirit power wasted? Because the first thing Jesus did not do when he rose from the dead, is go back to Pontius Pilate and say, no, actually your hands are dirtier than you've realized. Was the power of the Holy Spirit wasted because the first thing that Jesus did not do in the story is go back to the Pharisees and put them in their place. Was the power of the Holy Spirit wasted because the first thing Jesus did not do when he resurrected was find the next body of water to have an encore performance? You want to see me walk again? Here we go. Was the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead, the Holy Spirit movement wasted? Was it wasted because we don't see demons called Jesus by name post-resurrection? Was it wasted because he didn't gather the thousands, women and children and men, and seat them in groups and then pass out fish and bread to a multitude beyond? Was the power wasted because there wasn't a miraculous mass feeding again? Was the power of God that rose Jesus from the dead wasted because we don't meet another woman at another well? Was the power of God wasted that there weren't 10 more lepers? so that all 10 could come back this time to proclaim the name of Jesus. No. The power that rose Jesus from the dead was not wasted because the first thing that Jesus did was restore relationship and oneness with those he loved most. That is spirit power. What's an image that comes to mind as you hold that last story? A story of reconciliation and restoration and redemption and forgiveness and love. What's an image that just rises off the page for you? What are words that come to mind as that story is illustrated, is illuminated? Just take a moment on that third circle. As something comes to mind, even if you're in the process of crafting it out and you want to share it with the people, uh, I'll bring a mic to you. I'll never forget, I heard this story once and I thought it was really cool. I don't know how I never put it together, but just the fact that um, it specifies in the Bible that Peter denied Jesus over a charcoal fire and then Jesus asks three times if Peter loves him over a charcoal fire as well, and like how smell is such a powerful memory recaller for us, and I just think that's so powerful how um, Jesus changed that for him, and like 
Yeah, it's just such a beautiful, unique thing to put in there. Thank you, Hannah. And the detail doesn't need to be in there unless it does. And there must be something in the detail, the ordinariness of a charcoal fire in the story of Peter. Thank you, sis. On this one, but consistently with all three, I'm struck with how slow Jesus was with the stories of resurrection, that he didn't rush through them, um, whether it's walking along the whole path or waiting a whole week. Um, and even the repetition of this one, it's Jesus doesn't rush Peter to that arrival point or to that healing or to that resurrection, but takes his time with it. Thank you, Caleb. One more. I think through all th three stories, I'm just sort of struck by the, the humanity of Jesus post-resurrection, which I've never really thought about. Um, you know, I think we think of Jesus conquering sin and, the, and death and the grave. And yet, you know, sort of the humanity, what I'm struck with is I'm thinking through the initial uh, scene. I, I pictured Jesus with like just human expressions walking alongside them. And then with Thomas, I pictured this, not like a antagonism, but like a love for Thomas as he's saying it. And just even in this, the, the sense of um, just wanting to be with them and reconcile with them. So just the human um, relationship part, I've never thought about like that. That's really nice. There's not much in our pages if you go to the resurrection and to see what follows. You flip the page and you go, oh, it's over. You get to the end of Mark's account of the story and you're like, I think somebody took the pen away from whoever was writing that because it just like ended, ended. You continue to read and you just continue to long for more and there's not there. And yet it's not that there's not enough. It's that maybe we haven't given enough to the simplicity, to the ordinary, and to just how beautifully remarkable and human and hopeful it is in a post-resurrection spirit movement to have others on your mind and to go meet them right where they are. Fears, hopes, needs, doubts, aches, and to say, I'm here. I'll meet you right where you are. I'm gonna tell you one last story and then I wanna give you space. If you turn the page over, there's blanks and those blanks are for your stories. Joel will come up and hold us some space for just a moment before we come to this table in communion. And in that, maybe there's resurrection stories that emerge in your own story. And then maybe even in this space, you just begin to sketch one of them. It was the summer before 10th grade and I'd had a serious high school relationship before. Ninth grade, deep high school relationship. It's funny, being a youth pastor for years, sometimes when a student says that, you're like, oh, that's cute. And then sometimes when they say that, you recognize, oh, there was actually probably more in that relationship than there needed to be. I used to just try to tell my students, just be really good friends. And yet some of them would just, as a wreck, give their whole heart to somebody else. And yes, that was me. I was young, romantic, inspired by Dawson's Creek and everything else. <laughs> My heart was being able to give it to yours in a moment's notice. As my girlfriend went away on a summer trip, though, I cheated on her with a girl that I had liked the year before. And right after. I remember being in my room and I could not go to bed. And I felt an invitation of the spirit to come outside and to call out to God. I did not know what that meant. Everything in my body just wanted to go to bed and forget the mistake that I just made. And not just the mistake, this was, this would turn out to be the most that I had ever hurt someone. And not just my girlfriend, 
but the other girl who can often be left out of the story in the way that I brought hurt and pain into her life as well. And so I just wanted to go to sleep. And yet I just felt an invitation. The strange part of the story is that I'd been a follower of Jesus, at least in my mind as an eighth grade. I went to one of those Christian camps. I heard the gospel proclaimed. I said, yes, I came home. I told my mom I was a Christian now. She said, cool, what does that mean? I said, I don't know, but I think I'm a Christian now. And so for the next two years, I think I lived a, I think I'm a Christian now experience. Christian in name, Christian in camp, Christian in youth group, Christian in songs. And yet it wasn't until I had hurt people more than I'd ever hurt people in my life that I felt that conviction right away and then an invitation from God. I think my invitation, I think I was mildly afraid that God was gonna spank me. Like I think something was gonna happen and I was gonna like, holy fire was gonna come down on me. And yet I followed my footsteps and I went and sat on the backyard and I looked at the stars. And I heard God as soft as the spirit can speak to a 10th grade boy. Is this how you want to follow me? Is this what following me is going to look like? Or do you want to give your whole life to me? My life changed in that backyard after the most I'd ever hurt people in my life. There was a lot of repair that still needed to happen in the days and weeks and months to follow. I needed to confess, I needed to own it, I needed to ask for, um, I needed to apologize and let forgiveness come if and when it came. I needed to apologize and name the wound there and just own it, and I did. But the change happened as God from the stars spoke to a 10th grade boy and said, do you wanna follow me, follow me? Because life's gonna look different if you do. So in a circle, I would draw some stars. And I would say, I think new life happened in my life that day. I committed my life to Jesus as an eighth grade boy. I started following Jesus as a new 10th grade boy that had just hurt people more than he'd ever hurt people in his life. And so God, I pray that you will illuminate the stories of our lives, the ones where we've been hurt, the ones where we've hurt others, the ones where we've been afraid, the ones where we've been hopeless, the ones where we've had deep, angry doubts, the ones where our heart has ached because do you not know how much we love you? The ones where we thought we were following you, the ones where we're still longing to follow you. God, would you remind us of resurrection stories? You are the God who writes resurrection stories. So give us images, give us visuals, give us words, so that we may tattoo these stories upon our heart. Remember how remarkably ordinary resurrection can be. It can be a boy in a backyard looking at the stars. It can be a hungry man needing a charcoal fire of fish tacos for breakfast after a long, lonely night. Would you meet us in the remembering, the retelling of these stories, God? It's in your name we pray.
hope over the week that some images continue to come to mind as you retell, recite, rehearse these resurrection stories in your own life. And then maybe you even have time to share with someone else. Swap resurrection stories, swap new life stories, swap the stories that God met you in the simplest and most profound of ways, the miraculous and in the mundane. One of the markers that we do as a church, it's like a tattoo that reminds you that even if you're away from home, here is home once again. This table calls us back week in and week out. And it's an opportunity to remember our true home, the body and the blood of Christ Jesus, not just as individuals, though we do get to come to this table as individuals, but we also get to come to this table as familia, as the body of Christ. So this table is open for you if you so desire for your feet to be moved to experience Jesus's body, Jesus's blood, and to do so in remembrance. This table is for you. I will be serving on one side. My dear sister Jennifer Arias will be serving on the other side. We'll both have the elements. They are gluten-free. And then as you receive them, you can bring them back to your chair. And we will take them all together. So God, I pray over this time. I pray for your body and for your blood to be markers of your resurrection. This new life that we get to celebrate in together, that we now share the same body, that we now share the same blood. Because of your spirit, it courses through our veins together. It's in your name we pray.